All right, everyone, we're live. We're live early. Um, just kind of a little side note before we dive into some stuff. We're talking with Jeff. Uh, I'm in a new location. I had to like uh, go to about two hours away from where I normally live, and my bandwidth is very slow. Like I'm really hoping the internet survives throughout this interview, but if I disappear, you know why. But um, enough of me. Today I'm talking with Jeff Cran. Uh, if you don't know who Jeff is, from what I've heard, he's a really cool guy. We're going to talk about his conversion from Judaism to Christianity. Um, we're going to talk about reasons to believe Jesus is the Messiah, his ministry, all kinds of fun stuff. Um, really looking forward to this. How are you doing, Jeff? I'm doing fine. Awesome, man. So. Awesome. Really looking forward to this. Uh, appreciate you being really flexible with me as I am battling the elements through bandwidth, um, through this interview as we start early and what's up everyone and joining us in live chat. Um, before we get in, just want to say, as always, this show is presented uh, by you guys with your support. You can support the show at patreon.com slash adhere and apologetics. But with that out of the way, uh, Jeff, just to start off, can you talk a little bit about who you are, what you do, things like that? Sure. Um, I'm affiliated with Chosen People Ministries, uh, but I, I kind of have my niche. Uh, I, I basically uh, feel that my purpose is to make much out of Messiah through God's big story. Or, or meta narrative. So that's that's teaching and apologetics for me. And those are my my loves and what I feel called to. Um, and so that includes live outreach and speaking and uh, teaching on YouTube twice a week. Yeah, man. Um, I, I saw you have a YouTube channel going. Talk a little bit about like what you're doing with your YouTube and then kind of like what else you're doing with your online presence with your ministry. Um. Uh, the Wednesday night is it's pretty much an apologetics program. Um, and the topics have varied a little, but I've dealt some with the objections of Tovia Singer, who's a Jewish polemicist. Uh, when he gets uh, too wild and crazy, I got to kind of like do <laughs> something to put the walls back up because he kind of goes all over the place. Um, but I've dealt with other things. I've dealt with common objections that Islam borrows from Jewish polemicists. Most people don't realize it, but a lot of Muslims are tuning into by Tovia Singer to get their objections to Christianity. Uh, so I've done some mosque outreach and some programs like that. And, and then there are just particular uh, apologetics problems that are of great interest to me. Uh, one of them is the problem of evil, which impacts Jewish evangelism a lot and also personally uh, holds some meaning for me. So there are those type of episodes. And then Thursday, we've been going through Matthew, Matthew through Jewish eyes. And that's a more exegetical study. And that's kind of the more the teaching end of the spectrum. So yeah, I hope that makes sense. Yeah, man. It's a, it's a lot of awesome stuff that you have going on. And I, I'm really to check out, I haven't seen too much of what you've done. I know that I've heard a lot of good things from a lot of people and you're doing some really awesome stuff. So I'm looking forward to checking out people like, uh, I don't know if you know, Roxby and A2D2, they've been like, Talk to Jeff, talk to Jeff. And like, here we are. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, good stuff. Uh, so let's just start with this. Um, talk a little bit about your testimony, uh, how you came to Christ. Um, go into your background. Take as much time. Just talk about your story. Okay. Um, you know, it's so funny. I've been doing this in churches, speaking for years. It's almost like I have the long version, the medium <laughs> version, and the short version, depending on whether I'm at a potluck around a table or I'm actually up front. Uh, I grew up in a um, 
very interesting household. My mom was raised Orthodox. My dad was reformed. Uh, my uh, background, I mean, not very practicing. My dad was on the secular Jewish end of the scale, and my mom was more on the religious end of the Jewish scale. So my dad and my grandfather used to argue about the existence of God. And then I started taking walks with my dad and discussing life issues and philosophical issues. And I like to say that my dad would be horrified to realize this, but he was actually training me in apologetics, but he didn't know it yet. Uh, and so we'd have these awesome walk for two mile conversations. Um, my, I had a real interest in philosophy. I had a real interest in deep thinking. I was a nerdy Jewish kid with the tape on his glasses, you know, like something from Big Bang Theory, mm -hmm. uh, that kind of guy. Uh, and so um, I ended up getting my religious training because my grandfather really took me under wing. I was the only grandson. And so he sent me to religious Jewish camp and I used to go with him to synagogue. And then I used to come home to my agnostic father. Uh, and so that was a real interesting sort of combination. Um, what I got from my background uh, was that God was the good king. He was almighty God. He was the God of our forefathers. He was the good king. Uh, and that's kind of the image. Uh, a lot of Jewish blessings are blessed art thou, O Lord, our God, king of the universe. So there was this concept of kingship, and then there was this concept of him being the good king. He was good, but he was king also. Um, right about high school, I started dating a Catholic girl. That's breaking the 11th commandment, thou shalt not date Catholics. <laughs> uh, and so my grandparents had a real problem with this, not because they were so observant, but because of a lot of Jewish people. Assimilation is the thing that Jewish people fear. Uh, mm -hmm. And so it's, you know, if a fish marries a bird, where will they live? Uh, and so that sort of thing. And I was highly offended. I mean, this girl had done nothing to them. Uh, and so I cooled in my practice of Judaism and got into the sciences. And uh, I didn't find out anything about God through the natural order that I didn't already know through a passing acquaintance with the five books of Moses. There was nothing new there. Uh, and so then uh, ended up uh, being a little more cavalier in my relationship with this girl than I should have been. Because uh, we thought, you know, we were going to get married after high school and have the white picket fence and the 2.3 kids and the dog in the yard and that whole thing and had these great delusions of what I thought life would look like. Uh, and um, that is not the wife I'm married to who came from a nice Baptist background because I always get that question at churches. Is that her? No, that's <laughs> not her. Um, and so. Um, went to college and ran into my first evangelical Christians who were really serious. Uh, I had a roommate who was unsaved who invited me to a navigator study on the gospel of John. Now, if you want to confuse a Jewish person, you invite them to a Bible study on John. <laughs> because the first thing I ran into was the Trinity. So I started trying to figure out how Christians do math. And I said, well, help me out with this. Uh, how many persons in the Godhead are there? Well, God, the father, God, the son, God, the spirit. I'd say, how many fingers do you have up? And they'd say three. And I'd say, so how many gods do you believe in? And they'd say, well, one. And then I'd say, well, let's do that math problem again. Because <laughs> I missed something here. 
Um, and so I did what I had always kind of done informally. You know, God was there. Okay, if their book's from you and our book's from you, they have to agree because you're not schizophrenic. So these books have to mesh. Otherwise, one of them is not from you. And I know which one I'm betting on. And so God began to show me evidence for plurality in the Godhead through the Old Testament. There was no John involved. And he started with the verse I considered my life verse, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, which Jews call the Shema and they recite three times a day, maybe four. And so it's a very important verse to Jewish people. Jewish people who know nothing else about God might very well know the Shema. Uh, and so I even taught it to my kids in Hebrew, like from the time of their, their cradle, how much they remember. I don't, you know, that's a question. But uh, and so I went to God and I said, you know, here's this great verse, man. You gave us this verse. And he began from that verse on to show me plurality in the Godhead. And then I went home from the summer. And I had gone to some Navigators events. Navigators is a Christian organization started by a man named Dawson Trotman. Uh, who was in the Navy and got saved and thought this was great. And it got on our college campuses. And so I went to one of their ski weekends. Hey, hang out with people. These are nice people. I like them. And so I went and I got convicted for the first time, not because I'd never felt guilt. Jews know guilt. For this, I carried you nine months, a mother might say. But I felt guilty because I hadn't kept my own standards as far as my relationship with this girl. I had gone a little bit over the line. And so I felt guilty because I was very ethical uh, and so very traditional. And so um, I felt really bad and I got convicted. Um, and then I went back to my room and said, OK, if you, you offend the king of the universe, where do you live? Where can you go and hide? And that's when I started searching as far as atonement. And I ran into what I call the gospel according to Moses. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. But Judaism is bloodless. And so now I got a problem. There's no temple. There's no sacrificial system. And I start looking at what Judaism teaches about atonement. You fast once a year. You be real nice. You do a lot of the commandments. You hope it all balances out. Wait a minute. Moses didn't say that. I'm reading Moses. I'm reading what the rabbis say. Moses and the rabbis don't agree with each other. There's a problem here. Who told them they could change what Moses said? Meanwhile, I started reading prophecy. I got through John and went, this doesn't make a lot of sense. But I know why. Because I read the end of the story without reading the beginning of the story. So I'll start with Matthew. Because that's the beginning of the story. That's the way I thought. So I started reading Matthew. And I was shocked. I figured out Jesus wasn't Swedish or Italian. It was just absolutely shocking. Because uh, that's what I thought. I thought Christ was a last name and it didn't sound Jewish. It wasn't Christenstein or Christenberg. And so I thought, you know, and all the pictures, I mean, they looked very Swedish to me. Uh, and so uh, I started really getting introduced to the Jesus I never heard of. And finally went back and... Uh, it was decision time. Uh, my dad had found out I went to Navigators. He thought it was a yacht club, but I had to explain to him it wasn't. Hmm. And uh, he said, you know, I'm a good Jewish father. I'm raising Jewish kids. 
regardless of what I believe, this is not what our people believe. And so if you do this, um, I'm sorry, you're going to have to uh, figure out how you're going to deal with college. Uh, and I had not had a, a real working life or anything. And so went to God and said, okay, now I got real problems. And God essentially hit me with this. It wasn't an audible voice. It was the sort of thing that comes to your mind where you have a thought that just won't leave you alone. Uh, you can live as a traitor to the God of your forefathers and be called loyal, or you can live loyal to the God of your forefathers and be called a traitor. Which is it? And so on September 5th, 1980, uh, I just basically went to God and said, <laughs> guess who's going to have to take care of me now? Cause my dad's going to really have a fit <laughs> and, uh, got a navigator's Bible and, uh, woke the guy up who was, I was with cause I, he fell asleep while I was reading Daniel seventies, weeks of seventies. I said, do you have a pencil? And he said, why? And I said, because I'm going to sign the back of this Bible. And he said, what? And I said, I'm accepting Jesus as my Messiah. I just mm -hmm. did. I need to sign the back of this Bible. Uh, so uh, he did not have to labor very hard at all. Mm -hmm. uh, it was just kind of like ripe fruit. And, and that's kind of the highlights along the way. Hmm. Yeah, it's a... It's, it's an amazing story. And one thing that's really interesting to me that as you were going through your testimony is this kind of like the idea of atonement and how it affected your um, your conversion. Because I think a lot of the times when we talk to people who may have been a former uh, Jew, not a believer in Jesus, it, it's, it's often all about the prophecies, whether it's Isaiah 53 or something in the Psalms um, and something along those lines. But this idea of atonement, and it, it makes so much sense now that I think about it, is something that's largely not completely accounted for from a Jewish context. Like how, how can our sins be forgiven? If you read like the Pentateuch, there's so much in there. that's just about sin. Um, so can you just talk a little bit more about like this idea of atonement and how, like what was your thought process as a Jew as you kind of like looked into it? Well, the reason that most Jews probably don't think a lot about it is because it's been downplayed and Messiah's priestly ministry has been downplayed in Judaism since the destruction of the temple. And nobody questioned whether you needed blood atonement prior to the destruction of the temple. They may have thought, you know, it was important to have a right heart and atonement alone, you know, done just as a ceremony because the prophets talk about that. If you just go through the motions, it doesn't mean anything. Mm -hmm. uh, but they all knew that that there had to be something that needed to be done to bridge the gap between man and God. Uh, modern Judaism and even Orthodox Judaism doesn't spend a lot of time on that due to the oral law and the destruction of the temple. Uh, if you're, you know, folks listening and need to know what the oral law is, uh, the oral law is this theory that there was a mysterious oral Torah given when Moses received the law at Sinai that didn't get written down until later. And then it got passed to the rabbis and it later gets codified in what's called the Talmud. Uh, but there's, there's no evidence for this. So, so Judaism today is Talmud Judaism, Talmud Torah. It, it reads the Bible through the lens of the rabbis, kind of like being Catholic where your priests tell you what the Bible says, mm. but it's, it's kind of similar. There's this of tradition that you that you are told to read things through. Um, 
And so that's why most Jewish people don't spend a lot of time, but it's a key issue. Hmm. Uh, and they need to be confronted lovingly. They need to un understand their Judaism is not the Judaism of Moses. Hmm. It's not the same Judaism hmm. because they're taught essentially to believe that it's a perfect continuity from Moses to them and nothing really big happened. And really, there was an earthquake at about 70 AD that changed everything. And they're usually not aware of it. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting stuff here. I, I want to talk a little bit about, like, what kind of led you to the idea that Jesus was the Messiah? Like, was it, was it exclusively prophecy? Was there some sort of, like, personal experience? Like, what, what, what kind of the things that started to lead you to believe that the, this Jesus figure you see uh, was the Messiah? And and bef before you get into that, what what was your view of this before you, um, when you were when you were a Jew, before you had seriously considered Christianity? Um, I wasn't somebody that thought Jesus was this nasty person. Mm -hmm. uh, you will find it among some Orthodox Jews, and particularly back in Jewish history, uh, you know, as there are these friction rubs between Judaism and the medieval church. There's a lot of nasty, nasty that goes on. Uh, I didn't have that feeling. I thought of him as being a great man, uh, probably a great teacher. I know that you could like take that apart apologetically fairly quickly. Um, but there was nothing I knew of his teachings personally that was really abhorrent. I mean, most of the church going Christians I knew uh, were Ten Commandment believers. You know, they had a basic morality that I could relate to. Um, they they claimed to be monotheists, even though I couldn't figure out how. Um, they seemed to have one God. They seemed to view him as the creator. So I viewed Jesus as, as probably an, a good guy. Um, you know, I didn't view him as the responsible for all the church history. A lot of Jews do. They feel like all the bad church history is on him. Uh, I didn't really have that feeling. Uh, I didn't view him as somebody who set out to be a false prophet. You're also going to see that among Orthodox Jews, where he's, you know, this is where uh, Atovia Singer would, would claim Jesus was ignorant at best and deceptive at worst. Mm. I didn't have those feelings. I felt, though, that he didn't relate to me. See, I'm this Jewish kid from Chicago, and Jesus is possibly Swedish or Italian, and so he's not my Messiah because my Messiah is supposed to be Jewish, talk about Jewish things, relate to Jewish people. Uh, and so he was just a, you know, it was because I kind of viewed him like, you know, like a, another Socrates kind of person. You know, all nice and good, but no relationship to me. So What changed is... Go ahead. No, I was going to say, I was going to ask you, so what, what changed? So, yeah. What, what, yeah, what changed was seeing Jesus through the eyes of Matthew, beginning to understand uh, that really his presentation related to a Jewish audience incredibly, that there are deliberate things here that relate. He, he talked about Jewish questions. He dealt with Jewish scriptures. He interacted with, with Jewish people. Um, he addressed them in a way that they would understand. So he was, he was very much a person who, who lived and swam in Second Temple Jewish culture. 
and seeing the Jewishness of Jesus began to allow me to see him as a messianic candidate. Hmm. Okay. Um, so let's look at some ideas that are kind of some objections that you'll see from Jews to this idea that Jesus is a Messiah. You, you've hit on really most of these already, but we'll kind of dig into them a little bit more. Um, so the, the first idea I'd love to look at is the idea that uh, the, the Jews were and to an extent still are expecting like some sort of like conquering king um, is the way they'll phrase it often instead of a suffering servant like Jesus, which um, like I know like a Ben Shapiro and his talk with Robbie Zacharias, I still remember um, him talking about that. And I think it's a common Jewish belief. So what, what, how, how do you respond to that idea that Jesus, that the Messiah is supposed to be this conquering king? Uh, well, there is a lot of, now one of the things that is, is interesting is that, that if I'm dealing with someone like a Ben Shapiro, and if you get a good camera shot of him, you'll see the yarmulke on the back of his head. So mm. he's an Orthodox conservative. He's not your average secular agnostic Jewish person like my dad was. Mm -hmm. So you can talk with him on a slightly different level. Um, when you're talking to someone like a, a Ben Shapiro, um, you know, let's just role play for just a second. Hey, Ben, um, you know, it's very interesting to me that you don't really view uh, Messiah as a suffering servant. Why, why do you think the Talmud calls him the leprous one and then refers to Isaiah 52 through 53 if the rabbis never understood him as one who was going to suffer? It's a good question. I'm glad I'm not Ben Shapiro answering that question. <laughs> you know, in other words, there's enough in Jewish thought to point to a suffering servant. Mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Michael Brown has done an incredible job with his five volume set on answering Jewish objections. It's still the gold standard. Um, and, uh, one of the things that I like, he does is he goes back to the Jewish writings. So I can say, look, you know, there is plenty in Jewish thought that indicates he's a suffering servant. You know, uh, if you want to take issue with Isaiah 53, we can do that, but just understand that Jewish thought affirms the idea of a suffering servant. Um, the other thing too is, um, now this is interesting. I did a great message called Why I Am a Christian when I was at a Muslim conference. Mm. And I said, this is the coolest thing about our faith. Judaism has no ultimate answer to the problem of evil. Because you see, if you just enforce good on people, you haven't made good people. You just made subjugated people. So if he's just a conquering king who comes back, how is the problem of evil for once and for all dealt with? And if it's dealt with just by force, then God wins through just force. And now you're making God more like Allah than you are like the God of the Bible, who wins through his goodness, not merely through force. And so Judaism doesn't have, rabbinical Judaism doesn't have an answer to the problem of evil. The answer is one day Messiah will come and get rid of every bad person. Well, that's great unless you're one of the bad people he's going to get rid of, which is just about, which is everybody. And so it doesn't really satisfy when you really get into uh, some of those issues. Judaism points out God's goodness. Uh, it does point towards some answers, 
But ultimately, those answers don't work if you don't have some way that God's goodness eventually wins in the end. Mm. And a conquering king doesn't do that. Um, people need something more. They need a redeemer. They need a goel in the Hebrew. They need a kinsman redeemer, not just a king. Uh, and so it doesn't really satisfy uh, that basic worldview need. How does good win in the end? Hmm. Yeah, man, there's a lot of good thoughts there. Um, and as we kind of go to this next next objection, uh, there were a couple of people asking about if there will be a Q&A. And we'll probably try to save the last, like, 10 minutes. Ish. We're going to go for about an hour um, for a Q&A. If you guys have questions, so a question or so. Um, but as we keep on going, uh, the next one is um, something you brought up, something you personally didn't believe. But I think a lot, a lot of Jews believe, and they'll say that Jesus is this, like, damaging false prophet who – was trying to destroy Judaism or wreck Judaism or whatever you want to, there's a million different ways you could phrase it. So when you're dealing with someone who has this kind of view of Jesus, like how do you approach that? Yeah, this is very, very singer-esque. Okay. This is the sort of stuff that you'll get maybe in Brooklyn. You know, uh, Jesus was illegitimate. He was horrible. He taught against the Torah. Um, you know, a great way to deflect stuff like that is to ask questions back. And it's very Jewish to do that. Answer a question with a question. Mm. Um, in what way was Jesus damaging? In what way did he teach against Torah? Now, you got to have a two-pronged approach to this, okay? Or you're going to get yourself hung up. Uh, first of all, you need to point out that Jesus didn't have a problem with the scriptures themselves. In other words, the entire Tanakh he had no problem with and affirmed. Uh, so Jesus didn't teach throw out revelation. He wasn't anti-revelation. Uh, and that's easy enough to point out. Where did he go to teach? Well, he didn't go to the local Circle K. He went to the synagogue. Did he continue to observe the feasts? Yes. Uh, in Matthew 5.17, he says he has not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Why would he say something like that if he was against Torah? Now, the flip side you have to be careful about is, did Jesus teach, um, and this is where I, I get into some disagreements, and you get into disagreements even in the Messianic community. I don't believe Jesus, Jesus understood something that Paul understood. When Messiah comes, the Torah will change. It won't be the same thing. Uh, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 33. Behold, that day is coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with them when I in the day that I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt. So it's got to be different. If it's not the same, it's different. I'm pretty simplistic that way. Whatever's not the same is different. <laughs> and so it's got to be different. And so the right question is to ask what's different and what's the same. And so you can go to guys like Mark Shapiro, who is not a believer. But in his book, he talks about those rabbis who believe that the Torah would change during the Messianic era. And that's the basis for Paul. Paul believes the Messianic era started 
The other thing you need to understand is the difference between the spirit of the law and the letter. So what's the spirit of Torah? Well, the two great commandments are the spirit of Torah. I like to explain the law to people like this. Okay. The two are explained by the 10, which are explained by the 603. Because Jews say there are 613 commandments. So the 603 explain the 10, which are explain the two. And the two are loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. And then people sit around and say, well, how do I love my neighbor? Oh, here are 10 great laws that will help you love your neighbor. Oh, but I don't know what not stealing means. Well, here's 603 laws to help you understand what not stealing means. Uh, and so uh, Jesus wasn't this horrible prophet. He gave the meaning of the Torah. He is the living Torah that gives the meaning of the Torah. And that's the sort of thing you should say to an Orthodox Jew. I don't believe Jesus came to destroy the Torah. I believe that Jesus came to bring the Torah to its ultimate goal. Hmm. Yeah, I'm trying to remember the exact reference where I believe it's Jesus says, I have not come to abolish the law and prophets, but to fill them. Um, something you see in, in his own message. Uh, so let's keep on rolling here. Uh, another common objection, you brought this up earlier, uh, is the Trinity. I think obviously as Christians, it's obviously hard to explain in, in general. Um, it's one of the more challenging things where if you ask the everyday Christian to explain the Trinity, you know, it, it can be challenging. So um, specifically, like when you're ex explaining this idea of like um, one God, but the three persons, like how, how do you explain this to uh, a Jew who typically just believes in, you know, um, you have the one God you see in the Old Testament, um, but not the or at least they, they believe you don't see the three persons in the Old Testament. Yeah. Um, one, I always start with a Jewish person by explaining, I don't believe that the Trinity, and I will use the term triunity sometimes to avoid the Latin, mm -hmm. because the Latin trinitas simply means three. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I'll say, well, when you're talking about the complex unity of God or the triunity, uh, it has nothing to do with how many gods there are. It's the nature of his oneness that we are discussing. So I immediately shift the conversation to it's the nature of his oneness that is at issue here, not the question of his oneness. And that skirts a lot of problems. What most Christians don't realize is that before the Trinity was ever made clear in the New Testament, God did coming attractions. He did trailers to the movie. And Christians need to learn to use the trailers to explain the movie. And the trailers are things like the angel of the Lord who says that I am the God of Bethel. Uh, and I even have uh, some of those references, but he's very clear with Jacob where he says that I am the God of Bethel, the God of your forefathers. Now, this is an angel. This is an angel saying he's God. Now, wait a minute. So what you're telling me is God can come in the form of an angel. He can't come in the form of a man. Who's in heaven while the angel of the Lord is visiting Jacob? Do you mean the universe is, is not being run by God anymore? Well, wait a minute. If, if God is God and the angel of the Lord is God and God's omnipresent, but he's localized at the same time, uh, don't you have the basis? For a trinity there? 
Don't you have a basis for a mysterious oneness that we don't understand well? And so there are these great coming attractions and Christians need to learn to use them with their Muslim friends and with their Jewish friends. God has been preparing all along. Here it is, trailer, 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 time for the movie to premiere. Boom, there you are in the big story. Uh, and so that's the sort of thing, the angel of the Lord. Interestingly enough, if somebody like um, Ben Shapiro says, now, wait a minute, you're reading stuff in because that's a common claim. You're reading stuff in. Uh, I could just take a quote from the Jewish Encyclopedia by Isidore Singer, where he clearly states that the angel of the Lord is regarded as being deity in Jewish thought. Uh, and he's got a whole article on it being a self-manifestation of God. And you can even find that in Logos is great because this is a resource you can have in Logos and go right to page 489 where he goes on to say, here's a Jewish source saying, oh, I think the angel of the Lord is a self-manifestation revealing of God himself. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you say, okay, God's God, the angel of the Lord's God. Oh, well, it sounds like what the Christians are saying. And Michael Brown does the same sort of thing. The glory of the Lord being deity and being a person, the angel of the Lord being deity and being a person. Uh, places where the angel of the Lord and God the Father talk. There's a place in Chronicles where the angel of the Lord is, is plaguing Israel. Because that's what David picked for a punishment. Bad idea, King David. And the Lord speaks to the angel of the Lord from heaven and says, stop. Well, the Lord in heaven is God. The angel of the Lord's God. Um, those are two people talking to each other, both being God. So now you have binitarianism. Uh, if your folks are into books, uh, another non-Christian guy named Daniel Bayarin did a book called The Jewish Gospels where he defends Binitarianism in the Second Temple period as being a view that some help to. Uh, so it's a matter of getting acquainted with some of these things. And, Ben, once you have these resources, you know, Ben Shapiro doesn't want you on his show, or if he does, he definitely wants to go out for something to have afterwards because he's got a lot to think about. <laughs> yeah, a lot of really interesting points you bring up. Um, one thing I, I just add uh, regarding the Trinity, um, I think one of the really interesting explanation comes from Nabil Qureshi, uh, the late Nabil who passed away. He talks about the idea that, um, you know, we have the three persons, but one God. It's, it's not a self-contradictory term, which helps, you know, because if it's not, it's not like saying a squared circle or married bachelor, something that's just like literally impossible. And the idea that we, we can't explain it in like, and an anal a perfect analogy, like you know, people attempt to explain it whether it's like the sun or um, all these other different types of analogies. And the fact that we can't do that kind of shows just like a little bit of like the amazing splendor of the God we serve, because He's just so much greater than our limited minds. Well, and you can't use this as much with a Jewish person, with but uh, it's interesting to note that love has to have an object. This is what J.P. Moreland. Uh, used with us, I believe it was JP when I was in class, uh, he talked about community. And he talked about the fact that if you have a God who is love, in his essence, whom did he love? And if someone says, well, 
creation, well, then he's a God who's dependent on creation to have an object to love. Hmm. So now he's a dependent deity, is he? Um, doesn't work as well with a Jewish person, but John, I think it was a defense John of Damascus used. Uh, and it works a little better with a Muslim person, <laughs> uh, you know. Yeah, yeah, a lot of good stuff. Um, we'll, we'll throw one more objection in here, and we'll probably transition to a couple of Q and A's in the live chat. So if you have questions, uh, put them in, and we'll hopefully get to them. Um, so the last thing um, that I want to talk about is this idea that um, Jesus didn't fulfill all the prophecy we see um, for the Messiah. So I, I have a scripture for you that I'll kind of read that. Um, I've seen some Jews used to try to argue, say, hey, Jesus didn't do this, so he, he couldn't have been the Messiah. So uh, if you have your Bibles, I'm just going to read Isaiah 2.4 uh, in the English Standard Version. It just says, he shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Um, so this is, this is one scripture where, uh, you know, you have this idea that you have this Messiah who's kind of, it seems like ruling over in an earthly sense uh, in this passage. Um, so how specifically would you, would you tackle this passage um, with, with the Jews saying, Jesus, Jesus didn't do this, so Jesus can't be the Messiah? So I'd say, well, now you have a problem on your hands, okay? Uh, that would be true if you had one Messiah coming once. But the Jewish mm. scriptures don't indicate one Messiah coming once. The Jewish scriptures give you an enigma. In Daniel 7, 14 and on through the rest of that little section of scripture uh, is very clear that Messiah is coming in the clouds. But if you go to Micah 2, 5, 2 and 3, Messiah is being born in Bethlehem. Uh, do you believe in two comings or two Messiahs? Which is it? If you believe in two comings, then Jesus didn't have to fulfill everything the first time and your objection is mute. If you believe in two messiahs, a messiah ben David and a messiah ben Joseph, uh, then you have other problems. But in either case, I have an explanation. I believe in two comings. In fact, this is the genius of our God. When men set up a kingdom, they set up the kingdom and then get the subjects. When God sets up a kingdom, he gets the subjects and then he sets up the kingdom. Such is the wisdom of our God. Mm. Uh, and so you can go ahead and leave them with that sort of situation and say, OK, now they may fall back on the two Messiah theory, which was popular during the part of the Talmudic period. The Amorim who postulated a Messiah Ben David and a Messiah Ben Joseph. And I'll say to them, well, I have a problem with two Messiahs. Here's my problem with two Messiahs. One Messiah is in the singular. So unless you're terribly schizophrenic or the Queen of England. You don't use the plural to refer to one person. Uh, and two, there's only one genealogy given for Messiah. Can you please explain to me how a human being doesn't have a genealogy? Why aren't there two genealogies? Why isn't Messiah used in the plural consistently if we're expecting two Messiahs? So you got some explaining to do if you want to try and follow that road. Uh, so the answer is two comings. Yeah, uh, that's something I was thinking. I was kind of just reading this passage. Sounds a lot like uh, what we see in the doctrine of the millennial kingdom, depending on how we interpret that doctrine. Uh, so before we go into Q and A, kind of a last question here. Um, so, as Christians, uh, how how do we? What are some general like 
tips or advice you could give to someone who, who wants to share the gospel with a, a Jew? Obviously, we have more secular Jews than you have the more uh, conservative Orthodox Jews. Uh, so kind of with a more conservative, like committed to their beliefs, maybe answer that first and then talk a little bit more about like a secular Jew. Um, just a few tips. A few tips. Um, you want to defang the snake of assimilation. In other words, what you want to do is you want to show them how Jesus is the one who is the ultimate fulfillment of what they've been waiting for instead of the antithesis of what they should expect. So you want to defang the assimilation issue. You do that by drawing connections between your new and old and between uh, Jesus's emphasizing the connections. Jesus's person and work do match up with the Jewish scriptures. Um, and so you kind of want to make that connection. For an Orthodox Jewish person, you're going to get kickback, but at least you're defanging that subconscious barrier that's there. I have to tell people, I didn't give up my Jewishness. I dealt with my sin. And that's what you want to make very clear to your Jewish friend. We're not talking about your your heritage we're talking about your heart problem your heritage god has no problem with he gave it to you it's your heart problem we're dealing with here and so you want to make the issues separate you want to kind of do that um um and even with the orthodox jewish person you want to do that to an extent um and so you also, with the Orthodox person, want to make it very clear that, you know, I really appreciate that you're following the Judaism of the rabbis. But you and I both know that you're not following Torah. You couldn't be following Torah. Because so much of Torah, the five books of Moses, is dependent on a sacrificial system. And then if they go with, you know, uh, yeah, that changed and we got information from the oral law, you'd say you would have to prove to me that the oral law was given at Sinai. Uh, you have the rabbi's word for it. Why are they so trustworthy and I'm not? Why are you willing to take their opinion on the Bible and not take other opinions on the Bible? You're a thinking person. You don't need the rabbis to tell you how to read, do you? And there's plenty of helps out there if your Hebrew's rusty. But where do you get the idea that the rabbis get to change the system? Who gave them that authority? Uh, a lot of good points you bring up here as we as we transition to a Q&A. Hopefully I can help people. Um, remember last summer or two summers ago, I was at JFK Airport and there were a bunch of Orthodox Jews there. And I was like, I have no idea what I would say to them as a Christian. Um, so yeah, your your answer helps a lot um, as we kind of go into Q and A. There's a couple questions we'll hit on, and then we'll start to wrap things up. Uh, first one's from Cham Bremer. How's it going, Cham? Uh, he says, "What conflicts uh, do you see between science and the God of Messianic Christianity?" Uh, I struggled being a Darwinist going to a Hebrew school that kept telling me the creation story. <laughs> that was kind of interesting. I'd go to Hebrew school and we'd read Genesis in the Hebrew. 
uh, and talk about Genesis in the Hebrew. I had a Chumash, which is just the five books of Moses in, in Hebrew. And, and I remember learning to read. Uh, and then I'd go to science class on Monday morning. Uh, and so, yeah, the issue of origins uh, was a bit of a struggle uh, because my grandfather would say, this is our book and we take it seriously. And then my science teacher would say, this is your book and you don't take it seriously. Uh, and so that was one of the big conflicts that I ended up having. I don't think it was a conflict between God and science because truth is truth. I think it was a conflict between two worldviews. Um, so um, that was probably the greatest because Genesis was in my face a whole lot. Hmm. Uh, good stuff. Uh, Ramon the Large, how's it going, Ramon? Uh, he says, what about Daniel 9? I've heard a guy trying to say Daniel 9, 24 through 27, was about Cyrus and the priests who had to quit because of the destruction of the temple. Uh, would love to hear Jeff's response. So do you have any thoughts on this question, Jeff? Oh, sure. Daniel's Daniel's a big I'm just making sure that I've got the right section here. Hmm. Looks Thank like it's phone. with the 70 it, weeks. Yeah. Oh, the 70, yeah. That's what I was thinking he was going for. Um, <laughs> uh, you're going to have problems matching the timetable up. Um, but the other thing is that Messiah Han Nagid, uh, Messiah the Prince, doesn't die for his own sins. Uh, I don't remember Cyrus dying for anyone's sins, and neither do I remember the priests uh, being sacrificial atonement according to the sacrificial system. I mean, you didn't go to the tabernacle and sacrifice one of Aaron's sons. So I'd say context there uh, in Daniel. And the, even the beginning of the passage contains seven Hebrew infinitives. And infinitives in Hebrew indicate purpose or result. Uh, infinitive constructs. There's another type of infinitive. We don't need to give a Hebrew lesson. But there are seven reasons given for those 70 weeks of sevens. Uh, and none of those were met by uh, Cyrus. Daniel's also written to the exiles who are coming back or who will be coming back. So the context and even the features of the passage don't lead me to believe it's the priests and Cyrus uh, with an honest reading. Uh, next question comes from Servant of Christ Ministries, who I believe is Jordan Ortiz. Shout out to them. Go subscribe. Another great apologetics ministry. Uh, he says, Jeremiah 31 through 30 verses 31 through 34 is usually um, uses a resort, uh, retort against Christians where it states that a new law, Torah, would be placed in our hearts. We'd love to hear your perspective, Jeff. Um, so I think he's specifically referring, I mean, obviously the whole passage. And then um, oh, I just had it here. Um, where it talks about the idea that God, in verse 33, the Lord says, I put a law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will give to God and they shall be my people. So how, so how do you look at this question, Jeff? Um, usually, and I'm trying to figure out, you know, depending on who's phrasing it, it's going to come out a little different. Uh, some would say that, you know, um, it's the same Torah being put in our hearts. So why don't Christians... Uh, keep the Mosaic law in its entirety. And I would say that that gets around the issue of what's changed in the law. Uh, part of my dissertation 
and touches on that. I don't believe the locus of change is only in the sacrificial system alone, but I think that sacrificial system affects other things. Uh, as far as it being placed in our hearts, well, it is placed in our hearts and will be with regenerate, regenerate Jews or when the nation as a whole uh, is purged of the unbelieving element and comes under Christ, they too will receive regeneration. Uh, so if I'm understanding the question correctly, and it could be my fault for not understanding it, um, I don't see any conflict between a new covenant and one of the features of that new covenant being the spirit of the law being placed in our hearts. Um, so I, I may have missed the question, but that's kind of what I got. Yeah. Uh, Next question comes from Josie. How's it going, Joe? Uh, they say, what's a good opening when approaching a, a Jewish person that you don't know to talk about the gospel? Oh, wow. <laughs> pretty, broad, pretty broad question here, you know? You see a lot of different ways here. You know, if, if well, you know, if I'm approaching someone I know is Jewish, I might start talking to them to try and diagnose what type of Jewish person I'm dealing with. Because I really want to know if I'm dealing with a secular Jewish person um, but, um, depending on the situation, I want to talk about gospel. I might say, you know, um, if I'm a Gentile person, what I want to do is say, you know, I, I really love the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob too. Uh, and really, uh, I'm, I'm kind of glad, um, that this Jewish person named Jesus came. Uh, what do you think about this Jewish person named Jesus? Where do you think he fits into history? Does he fit into Jewish history at all? Does he just fit into Gentile history? What do you think about him as a Jewish figure? And that's going to give me some some ground because I like to start with a question. You know, uh, I think it was uh, Kokai who wrote a book called Tactics, yeah, and I, I like the combo approach. Just just one more question. You know, uh, and and kind of lead the conversation that way. So, you know, Josie, I hope that gave you something, but engage them. Try to make the Jewishness of the, the Messiahship of Jesus the issue and start with the presumption of his Jewishness as a good way of building a bridge. Yeah, man. Uh, it's funny how time always just flies by when I'm talking to people. It's like, it's like I'm looking at it and it's like live five minutes and 52 seconds and that blank it's like live 50 minutes and it's about time to wrap out wrap up um man it's been a lot of fun um really appreciate it any kind of like start of closing thoughts here as we round third and, and start to wrap things up well first of all thank you very much for having me on the show i really appreciate it um i'm glad they high speed held out um <laughs> <laughs> that's really good um not over yet yeah, <laughs> well, we made it a for, uh, a good piece, right? Uh, <laughs> um, when you're dealing with a Jewish person, um, you're dealing with an individual that, one, you can hold to what God's given them very lovingly. I like to say, I didn't say this. Our book says this. You could say, I didn't say this. Moses and your prophets say this. I'm just quoting them. Um, so if you have an issue, you have an issue with your own writings, not with mine. Hmm. Uh, and that's a good approach. And two, build the bridges for them. 
let them see your faith as the culmination of what they were waiting for, as as the the final chapter, uh, the end of the story, so to speak, so that they don't feel that they're walking into a different movie, but they're walking into the rest of the movie. And I think those are really good points. Hmm. Yeah, man. Uh, you no, no, I didn't mean to cut you off. I thought you would finish what you were going to say. I was going to say, you know, but for Jewish missionaries, five approaches. You know, like four Jews, five opinions. Yeah. <laughs> I, so. I think I got what you're saying. Yeah. Good stuff, man. Um, all right. Right here, we're, we're about to slide into home here. For some reason, I'm stuck on baseball analogies. Don't really know why. Um, Nate, put your subscribe thing in the live chat. But but for people who are like, who's this Jeff Curran guy? Uh, how, how do they follow you and your ministry and what's going on? Um, you can go to uh, chosen people. I would encourage them. You know, the prayer letter is nice, and they get to hear a little from Dr. Glazer. Uh, chosenpeople.com forward slash uh, pray, and then the number four, Jeff Cran, J-E-F-F-K-R-A-N. And they can go there, and they'll see a beautiful picture of my family, which I can't show you right now. And they, they can sign up for the newsletter. Or you can meet me on YouTube. YouTube loves subscribers, right? <laughs> and so I don't mind getting a few more. Come join us uh, on YouTube. Subscribe to the station. And that's pretty easy. Just search for Jeff Cran Zion's banner, all one word, J-E-F-F-K-R-A-N, and then Z-I-O-N-B-A-N-N-E-R. And it should bring it up. And so yeah. there you go. Go follow Jeff Cran. Go follow his stuff. Um, shout out to Nate D2, Quarrens, Ethan Silva, Rocks, B, Servant of Christ Ministries, everyone else who is a part of this interview. Really appreciate it. And after you're done following Jeff everywhere, if you're new here, encourage you to subscribe, like the video, help it reach more people. Um, you can follow us on social media at AA Apologetics on Twitter and here in Apologetics on Instagram, Instagram, Facebook. Uh, and all that good stuff. Um, TikTok, that's what I was missing. TikTok. God, I love TikTok. Um, and then the show, once again, is presented by you guys because if you support, if you enjoy the show, you can support the show at patreon.com slash here in apologetics. We're a little bit over 60% funded. So dollar or two a month, you know, just pennies a day really helps um, as we push towards full funding. Jeff, man, this has been awesome. Really appreciate it. Thank you. It's been great. Yeah, man. I'm think I'm so praise God the internet lasted for the full um the full hour. So didn't think that was gonna happen. I thought we were gonna have to scrap this thing at the last second. And I was really glad. Praise God for the internet. Um yeah. All right. See you everyone.